every day I am seeing a new problem, thinking of a new solution. I have to like hold myself back on starting and working on new concepts all the time. And so that energy and that drive to work at a really early stage startup really started to get a little bit lost as the company grew. I was still kind of itching for that 30-person team in a room, all crammed there, working on an early stage concept. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, you probably recognize the name of this entrepreneur's first major company, Rent the Runway. Well, she co-founded it alongside her business school classmate and a No Limits podcast alum, Jen Hyman. And while she's still on the board of Rent the Runway, Jenny Fleiss is now the CEO and co-founder of Jet Black. Jet Black is a personal shopping service via text message, which was born out of Walmart's startup incubator. And what I think is really interesting about Jenny's story is that she was able to create this company with the backing of an enormous organization, Walmart. Or as Jenny says, creating a template for innovation inside of one of the largest retailers in the world. I think this is really an interesting story for anyone who's working inside a big company. Maybe you're not sure you want to take that leap and build your own thing. Well, it's possible to do it from within. Here's Jenny to tell you how she did. Jenny Fleiss, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. Our listeners will know your co-founder of Rent the Runway, Jen Hyman. She's been here on the podcast. And I want to talk to you about Rent the Runway, a company you co-founded with her. But I also want to talk to you about the work you're doing now with Jet Black. You're the CEO and co-founder. Jet Black falls under the umbrella, the roof of Walmart. That's right. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating. Most people leave like the really big company to go found the smaller company, which they hope to become the big company, you sort of did the reverse. Yes, that's true. Yeah. So Rent the Runway was definitely a startup from the ground up, came out of a concept that Jen and I innovated on while in business school. And now starting a business within the world's largest retailer, it it is the reverse in many ways. But I think that's where I'm able to add unique value and perspective. And, you know, one of the things that was most exciting to me was actually creating a template for innovation within the world's largest retailer. Um, But I have seen just how I can leverage the resources and infrastructure of that business to move even faster in growing this company. Day to day, standalone. We have an office in downtown New York. We've built our own team. Like We have a board just in the way you would as a startup. And that's kind of how my touch with with Walmart feels, like a way a VC in a startup would feel. What was the turning point? What made you think this is the right decision to move on from this thing that's your baby and you built it from the ground up out of business school? Yep, totally. Yeah, well, I still have a super sweet spot for Rent the Runway, and I'm so proud and passionate about that business. It was such an amazing career opportunity to to grow and build that company with Jen. From earliest days, Jen and I were really open about kind of who we were, our intentions, what we loved. And I'm a serial entrepreneur at heart. Like every day I am seeing a new problem, thinking of a new solution. I have to like hold myself back on starting and working on new concepts all the time. And so that energy and that drive to work at a really early stage 
startup really started to get a little bit lost as the company grew. I was still kind of itching for that 30-person team in a room, all crammed there, working on an early-stage concept. Um, and so, you know, I think the open dialogue we'd had around that had been really helpful. And timing is everything. Mark Laurie reached out with the chance to start Jet Black. And I'd wanted to work with him. I've known him for a while and really admired him. Um, and then the chance to do it in this huge retail environment and to have that impact on millions of consumers, if we get it right, is super exciting. Mark Laurie is the founder of Jet.com. That yes. was purchased by Walmart. So Jet Black is essentially a part of Jet.com. Well, we didn't actually even have to use the name Jet Black. We chose to. So it's associated with Jet.com. But we operate day-to-day standalone. You know, I love having having the name because it drafts off of the brand equity and the awareness that Jet has created for an urban consumer. But really, Jet Black is a personal shopping service over text message, standalone business. We buy some products through Jet.com. We buy some through Walmart. But we buy designer handbags from Gucci. We buy things from Saks. We buy Blue Mercury products, you know, all over the place. It could be whatever fits a customer's need. Michael Strahan and I talked about this on Good Morning America not that long ago. Essentially, if I'm desperately looking for a last-minute gift, I text you yep. and you text me back with options. Exactly right. So you can text us your need. Hey, I've got a birthday party. Recommend me something. You could just screenshot the paperless post invite, send it our way. We immediately know, you know, the age of the child, the theme, the date of the party, the location. If you want us to send it to the location, we can do that. Um, so we have requests like that where it's for a gift. We have basic things like laundry detergent, paper towels, and we start to know and learn those preferences so that you could literally just say paper towels. We know the SKU size. We know the brand that you prefer. And so I call it like click-free shopping, right? It's like, great, your order's confirmed for this and it'll be there later today. Or we have people who are buying designer clothing and apparel or snapping a photo of something they see on the street and someone else is wearing it. And they're like, I want that. Can you find that or find something similar? You can similar? do that? Yeah, we can do that. We have a, a mix of technology and people kind of tracking these items down. Um, and we do try to get it to you as, as quick as possible. Often that is same or next day. Um, and over time, you know, we're considering how do we just scale this to be bigger and bigger. Right now it's in New York, but it has the potential to be all over the U.S. So what's the biggest challenge for you at this point? It's still a young service. Yeah, it is still a young service. You know, I think the business, biggest challenge right now is just scaling the business. Um, so the first year was about getting the product market fit, right? So talking to thousands of consumers and figuring out what was missing in their shopping experience. And I think the main thing that we heard from them was shopping had become a chore. It was something to check off their to-do list, something that they had to get done. And it, it can be the case that shopping can be delightful. So we thought about, like, how could you bring back that delightful feeling of shopping, of, like, magic? And um, the way I think two-day shipping used to be actually delightful, like, five years ago, right? So what, what was the next version and the next ideation of that? And so it was with that kind of big vision that we set out to kind of innovate on creating Jet Black and to making that kind customer experience really optimized. And I think as we enter this you know, next year of life of the business, it's really about how do we scale the business, the unit economics, the, the model so that we can grow it and make more people have the opportunity to experience this. Um, Technology is a big piece of that, right? So right now, if you text us, there's a mix of bot and human that is interacting and responding. And as we get smarter on your preferences, more things can transition over to bot. And that's what will let us scale the business over time is is building up this technology so that we can um, make the service really robust. So for those of our listeners who are new to this idea of a bot, like basically 
you can, because of AI, you can text nowadays with chatbots in quotation marks, mm-hmm. and those chatbots can respond to your questions in real time. Yep. How far away are we, do you think, from that being almost like the primary first case scenario for most customer service? Yeah, I still think we're far away if you want it to be quality customer service. So what is very frustrating and we found from customer experience is that many chatbots or uses of AI and technology kind of throw it out there and lead to frustrating consumer experiences, which is why for many voice devices, for example, consumers don't shop on voice devices right now. They may listen to music. They may set timers, things that are kind of like one-way requests and commands that they, they, they're they going to make. But it's not yet that the technology is good enough for maybe a back-and-forth interaction or for layered requests where there's some specification and differentiation. So we've taken an approach of like a human-first approach where we actually said, we don't want the customer to ever be frustrated. So we have human eyes on every conversation. So right now, even if there is a bot who says, you know what, they always say paper towels, they mean this one, that's a really easy bot response to replenish their paper towels, there's still going to be human eyes on that interaction because if there's a follow-up question, if there's a subtlety, we want to kick that over to a human. Um, And I do think over the next, let's call it five years, we'll get to a place where the data is good enough that AI can take over so that 10% of the interactions are human and 90% are bot. Wow, 90% in that span of time. we can get there in the next five years. I want to talk a little bit about your career because you grew up here in New York City. Yeah. You went to Yale and studied political yep. science. Yes. Were you going to be a politician? No, I, I don't think I was ever going to be a politician. I studied political science because it was truly like the courses that I was most interested in, the professors I most wanted to take um, were in that section of kind of the handbook. And so it would it was like I can take classes that I like and not be forced into having to take XYZ. And that's what I wanted of my college experience, right? I wanted to really spend the time doing things that I enjoyed and um, was passionate about. And then you went into finance. I did. I went into finance. So in the career services office at that time, I graduated in 2005 from Yale. It was like finance or consulting. That was who came to campus to recruit. That was where, you know, all the smart kids were kind of competitive and vying for those positions. I'm a competitive person. So I got sucked into that whole thing. And, you know, it is this irony where like you spend 20, 21 years of your life, like heads down in school. And all of a sudden, within a couple of months are asked to make kind of this career decision. And and I often, you know, I, I had internships every summer, but I don't know that I stretched the boundaries on trying different types of internship experiences. So growing up in New York, finance is what's there. So I almost defaulted to my my connections and like the competitive jobs of having these finance internships. So I was almost never able to see anything other than that by the time it was time to make a career decision. Um, and that includes like I tell people, you know, it's not only about industry, it's also about the size of a business. So don't just test out one, you know, consumer packaged goods versus finance, test out like small, big startup, all those things. So by the time you're making that permanent choice, you're really informed. Were you not happy with the choice? I wasn't very happy with the choice. I started out in investment banking and I was really unhappy. Although looking back in retrospect, I'm glad I did it. It was a good foundation, but the actual experience of it was painful and not enjoyable. Probably for me, someone I would say even traumatizing. (laughs) Um, But I I describe it similarly, where looking back, like I see, I I tend to see the good in things, right? So I definitely value and appreciate the skills I learned, the fundamentals. 
the network that I built and some of the people in my my analyst class are like just doing cool things and I'm still connected with I married them. one of them. My husband was in my analyst there class and so that worked out for me. See, good good <laughs> things can come out of finance and banking. Yeah. Um I also kind of I, I say it jokingly, but I when I interview someone, I know that if they have worked in finance and banking, like They've got what it takes. Like they know what it is to hustle, to work hard, to like hundred you know. hours. So I think it yeah. also like I had that perspective. Um, but yeah, that said, I went to business school because I wanted to do something that I loved, and I truly believed that work could be something that energized me and made me excited to to go into the office and work every day. Do you think business school today is what it was when you went, and do you still see it as something where if you're in something today that you're not satisfied with, it's a good place if you're thinking business business, that it's a good place for that pivot or coming up with the pivot? I do. So, um, okay, so a couple things in there. So I think I tell people if they're thinking of business school, you either should go because you want an industry or career change or because you're burned out, you've been doing the finance banking thing, you kind of need like a couple years to just mental reset, even if you're going to go back into that lane, right? And I think those are both good reasons. Um, and so for me, it was in that former bucket of like, I thought I wanted an industry or career change. And what wound up coming out of it, though, was slightly different, right? It was more than anything, I think, just the mental brain space to like think, digest, to be in like a different environment where I was taking classes, but like vocationally minded classes that were like in a business context. So that was not like my undergrad experience, right? And kind of more of this political science and uh, liberal arts education. Like you're not thinking about like, what does it actually look like to be working in X industry, Y industry? You're learning for the sake of learning. You're learning how to think. You're learning how to dissect ideas, but it's not specific to an industry. Right. And then to be amidst classmates who have worked in these different industries and to kind of hear directly from them in an organic way of just getting to know people is also really telling. And so, I, you know, that is where where Jen and I met and I think are seeing each other in the context of a classroom and how we thought about different business issues and principles was such a great foundation to build a company and to, to innovate. And um, I think the biggest thing I realized at business school was like, I am an entrepreneur at heart. And I did it through, you know, I took career studies and career tests and stuff too, but just went back to like me as an eight-year-old who wanted to spend every summer day running a lemonade stand. And that <laughs> was like, which is energized did me and I loved your, it. How did you discover I'm an entrepreneur at heart. What was the test? Did you take a test that said you are an entrepreneur? Yes. Like I I took this test within the first couple months of being at business school. I think they have most everyone take it. And the test is like lots of questions. I don't know that they asked about my my childhood, but just personality traits, more like, you know, Myers-Briggs type things. And remember sitting down with the career coach afterwards and she was like, you're a 98% entrepreneur. She's like, I've never actually seen something like this, (laughs) right? And at that time, because I started business school in 2007, there wasn't like a template or model of like, well, what now? Like, what do we do with that knowledge that Jenny is meant to be an entrepreneur in the way that there is today? And so to your question of like, what's changed since I graduated business school over five years ago now, um, I, I think that entrepreneurship is more of a thing and more of a career choice path. I think for all business schools, you see a greater percentage of people going an entrepreneurial route, either working in a startup or starting their own business. Um, whereas I really had to kind of think about like what either career path would give me the entrepreneurial skills or eventually thought I was going to go work at an early stage startup because I I didn't know if I was ready to yet do it on my own right out of business school. And you and Jen famously came up with Rent the Runway. You had that first meeting with Diane von Furstenberg, which people, if you want to hear the full story, you can listen to Jen Hyman's podcast here. One of the things that I really admire about what you two built with Rent the Runway, in addition to the business, is that you created this foundation, Project Entrepreneur, where you're helping other women entrepreneurs. 
Did you go into the company thinking eventually we want to also have this other arm? And how how did you build out that other arm when you were so focused on building a business at the same time? Yeah, no, great question. It's been such a privilege to not only build Rent the Runway, but the Rent the Runway Foundation. And our first program there, Project Entrepreneur, is a combination of summits with action-oriented workshops and then an incubator. And, um, you know, when Jen and I started Rent the Runway, you know, we didn't have this like, yes, there will be the Rent the Runway Foundation a plan in that sense, but we did both share a passion for empowering women. And I think in our first couple of years, we really took advantage of and saw how our network and so many entrepreneurs who were generous with their time was critical in helping mm-hmm. us on our journey. And so what we, we felt very lucky and grateful to have that. I think we also gradually started to see as the business grew that female empowerment was part of the Rent the Runway brand. And it was in part because Jen and my story became tied to what Rent the Runway is and how, you know, we were women going after our big vision and dream and the community felt that kind of energy as well. And many of our consumers are power businesswomen and they're using our dresses to kind of take on the next kind of career move in their life. And um, I think wearing a great outfit makes you feel confident and empowered. So it was very authentic and true to what we were. Um, you know, why we decided to start, a bit in, start it in the throes of still running, you know, Rent the Runway at the time and now running another business is because those were who we learned the most from ourselves. So we found the most value from other entrepreneurs who were still in the mix of the day-to-day. They were maybe a couple years ahead of us, but they always kind of, whether it was they knew what the price per square foot of an office space was or what healthcare provider we should talk to or just, you know, expanding and leveraging their networks. They, they had that real hands-on skill set that was valuable to us. Um, and so we believed that we could offer that through an incubator program in a really unique way to women and wanted to pay that forward. And to your point, there is so much about being an entrepreneur that isn't the business itself. I mean, the healthcare provider, mm-hmm. where you locate and the cost, those aren't things that most people would think of as like fundamental to the business idea. Yeah. But if you get those wrong, yeah, they, you don't have the business. The, all that, you know, infrastructure type stuff can just take up a lot of time, especially in the first year. That's a place where with this Walmart relationship, I've been really grateful to get just this running start. But you're uncoding, you know, uh, so many pieces of starting a business and building a team while you're also solving a consumer problem when you're an entrepreneur. And, um, you know, so we, we try to give females both those access to the kind of that infrastructure answers and um, kind of perspective, but also resources on data, analytics, product, engineering, how do you recruit, how do you hire? Um, And what we kind of say is, you know, each entrepreneur who enters is fairly early stage, but they still have different challenges and goals that they're addressing in this program. So we try to think, like, how can we get each of them to that next stage in their career? And I will tell you the biggest theme we see across female entrepreneurs is they're often not thinking or dreaming big enough. Mm -hmm. So where I think we're able to add the most value and, and a goal that Jen and I feel passionately about is pushing them to think, you know, we have one company this summer that's um, bringing dental care and dental hygiene to offices, right? So this trend of people are in their office more, working more, like flu shots come to your office, why can't dental hygiene come? And it's like, okay, well... Like a dentist comes to your office for the appointment. Yeah, well, for the whole office, right? So you can book your slot and they're there in your office and it's during the work. Every six months, the dentist shows up. Exactly, right? Interesting. And so we're like, well, it doesn't just have to be dentists. Like, could it be doctors could, you know, like what other services could it be that are coming to the workplace and kind of making more efficient use of the employee's time because you didn't have to like leave the office, et cetera. But also the employer gets that advantage of like it's it's there. They The, the employee didn't have to leave for two hours for the appointment. So it's just like stretching that to think about could it be bigger? Can it think of other industries as well? What's one thing you learned the hard way at Rent the Runway that you're now applying at Jet Black? 
Hear more from Jenny Fleiss after a quick word from our sponsor. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring. Where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions. Then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. What's one thing you learned the hard way at Red the Runway that you're now applying at Jet Black? Gosh, um, I mean, I think learn the hard way around the runway, you know, being hands on with technology as much as possible. So I am not an engineer. I do not have a technology background. And one of the early mistakes Jen and I made was we found a firm to build our website and rent the runway and completely just like handed off the requirements documents when we worked really hard on all the details and what we thought it needed to look like. And um, then we're like, okay, now they're going to go build it. And they're going to just hand us over a website in a couple months. And it doesn't work like that, right? And um, I think we, we learned that the hard way, for sure, at Rent the when Runway. When you got the website back, it didn't look the way you we wanted it? We didn't get the website back was the problem, right? So we did, it didn't come back. And then we waited another week or two. And I wound up flying into Canada where this theoretical team of seven engineers was working on the site. It was like one person coming in at noon. And there was like wow. hardly anything. So I had to pull the plug. And, you know, we lost some, some money in that early day and hired a different team who we were way more hands-on and who built something in like a month and a half that was our initial website for Rent the Runway. And you'll hear many stories like this. Like, I don't think that's rare in entrepreneurship that that happens. Um, And luckily, we were able to launch and and it's all worked out great. Um, But it was very stressful and intense. And so as much as like, I'm still not a wizard in engineering, nor can I code, and certainly AI and machine learning are new to me, I will ask the questions, even if they're dumb questions, right? Mm -hmm. I will get the advisors by my side that I need to feel like I have a full perspective of an informed decision. And I've used that kind of tactic of getting more advisors and mentors by my side throughout my career. Um, And in fact, that's how I met Mark Laurie. I was trying to learn how to lead logistics at Rent the Runway. I led our warehouse logistics and and built our dry cleaning in vertically integrated um, for years. And I was like, who's doing logistics really well? And it was like diapers.com. And so it was like Mark Laurie and Nate Faust. And that's how I built that relationship. So I take that kind of, you know, you know more than you think you know, ask the dumb questions and get those kind of mentors and advisors in your camps that you can trust. But I think there's also another layer to that. I think a lot of us might feel like, well, why would I go to that guy and ask him for help when I can't do anything? Thing for him, and mm. I'm afraid that he'll see me as some some right. nuisance in my life. That we're not going to do business together per se. Yeah, and kind of what gave me either the guts yeah. to go no, and do I mean, it. But it, <laughs> you you had the guts. I think yeah. that's the key. I don't even like just knowing that that's what allowed you to figure it out. Yeah, and your willingness to ask those questions. Yeah, I think that's a really important lesson. I think so. And, you know, I think early on, we almost had no choice. So when Jen and I reached out to Diane von Furstenberg, we didn't have fashion background or experience. So it was like, well, what can we possibly do here? And so if you do it once and you are, I say being naive is one of the best secrets of 
first-time entrepreneurship, right? So we were naive enough to reach out to Diane von Furstenberg and to kind of ask her advice and her time. You see it once where someone actually gives you their advice. They give you their time. They help you forward. You're like, I'm, I'm going to do this again. This works. And and I think we have seen so many people be generous and excited to lend their advice and their experience to what we're doing. And um, and that's part of what makes us now, you know, want to pay it forward and do that as well as we were helped along the way to so, by so many people. When you were thinking about leaving Rent the Runway, what what kinds of opportunities were you thinking of at that time? Were you were you contemplating like I'm going to go out and start something else totally from scratch? I actually thought that I would go work in venture capital. And at some point in life, I think I still may want to do that. Um, and when, you know, Mark Laurie called me with this opportunity, initially I was like, gosh, like I really think I have my mindset on now doing venture capital. And the reason I thought that was a good fit was um, I would be able to touch so many early stage companies and the serial entrepreneur in me who loved, you know, giving creative scrappy ideas and ways to get started and kind of problem solving and like searching for solutions and, you know, meeting new young entrepreneurs. Um, that was like, that was my jam. That was what I missed. And I saw that through the foundation that we started, how I was able to do that with all those entrepreneurs. And so kind of take it to a place where that could be my day to day was really exciting. Um, and and so what happened, though, was that phone call from Mark was like this gut feeling and like, like this is so unique. This is such a great opportunity. Like, well, I didn't know if I could start another business on my own because I now know how hard it is, right? This was the chance to do it with half the work done for you, right? Yeah. Like Walmart's infrastructure. You have a nice little foundation there. Foundation. Let the, the fundraising itself can take up half of your time in the whole in the life of the company, let alone the first year. But, you know, the 401k plans, the health, the comp and benefits, the real estate, the legal, like all these things that Walmart's able to kind of bolster me with made it very doable, let alone the, the chance to kind of work with Mark on kind of this game-changing concept. So I think you've got to follow your gut. And I've seen that with, you know, marrying my husband. That was like such just a gut feeling in many ways, starting Rent the Runway, like one of our professors said to Jen and I, like, do that. It'll, it sounds fun. And it sounds trivial, but like, it felt right in our gut. And I think some of the biggest decisions I've made, like you kind of follow your gut. Um, So the operator bug wasn't fully out of me. And I think, you know, venture at some point in life will happen. The other thing I'll say is like, I think we're so lucky this moment in time, you can have so many facets of your life and your career. So I made an intentional choice when I took this job to say, you know what, like, I'm still going to do investing on my own and advising and the foundation. Like, I'm not going to pick a lane. I'm not going to choose. Um, and so the traditional, th- th- you know, rationale behind this, like, you can work and you can be a mom. And so like, I do that. But I work and then like, I'm on the board of Rent the Runway and I do invest and I do advise. And I think all those pieces make me a better leader in their totality. Everybody who's listening right now is asking the same question. How are you doing all of these things? How are you managing all of it? What What's your go-to thing for time management and helping make your life possible? I, w- I kind of like want more resources and tools. I wish I knew. Like I want to know yours. I, I feel like I'm <laughs> constantly running around. Like I, I'm an efficiency queen. Like I just – my whole life is driven by efficiency. I, I love lists. I use a tool called Wonderlist for like keeping to-dos that are synced on my phone and my desktop. But I also use physical lists. Um, I live and work you know, within five blocks of each other. Also right near the Rent the Runway office when I need to go there. Um, I will take meetings while I'm running or walking. I will you know, run to a doctor's appointment. So I'm like always trying to multitask and do a few things at once. My favorite thing is just thinking of like hacks of ways to do things <laughs> quicker and faster. Jen, actually, Jen, ran the runway, Jen, like just always joke. We were joking about it last night that like I just love thinking of these hacks of how do you do things more efficiently. 
Do you have a list of hacks somewhere? I don't. I, I kind of more like I, I probably have things I do as hacks, but I can just more really quickly think about like give me. I mean, give me something you're looking well, to solve. Here's what I want to do. This is what I want to do. I'm going to send you a list of things that I want to solve. Okay. It'll be a short list, and then I want you to write your hack, and then I'm going to post it on Instagram in the stories. Oh my god, I love that. So people can let's do it and see your hacks. Well, Jen and I were playing this game last night. She was like feeding me things, and I was like, "Here's my hack." Right. So she was like, "How do I get up and actually make myself work out in the morning?" I was like, "Okay." Find a Netflix series or show that you love. Don't let yourself watch it unless it's like you're watching it at the gym. Right. That's so, so like perfect. little things like that. Um, I like I that you out. run to appointments. That's very smart. Yeah. I think all my doctors think I'm crazy. But it's often as fast as the subway. Your doctors are like, you have an increased heart rate every yeah. time you come here. I'm not really sure what's going on. Right. But it's like the same time as, you know, time in transit. I'll take phone calls while I'm in an Uber or whatnot, too. You are constantly getting advice. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? The worst advice? Um, so resume building, I think, comes up a lot. And I think just doing something for the sake of resume building is not advice that that I typically endorse. Um, you know, and that relates to, I think, my experience in finance and investment banking, where you are doing it because you want that stamp of approval and the fancy name of the bank on your resume. But it's really grueling work. And as much as you learn some foundational skills, I don't think you can let yourself do that for too long unless you're really enjoying it. And I don't think you can keep building your resume um, again, year after year. Like There has to be some end, right? So can you cap it at a year or two years? And now it's like, okay, right, now I'm going to do stuff that I love every day. Because like, otherwise you're spending your time. You're spending your life. Um, so, so not resume. So, so don't just do things for the sake of resume building is one bad piece of advice. Um, you know, and then I think like, I don't know, I focus on the good advice. Like I think all the mm-hmm. things when you're saying this that comes to mind, like I focus on the positive and I think that's what you need to do to be an entrepreneur because like you've got to weed out the negative and just go forward on the positive. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Okay. It's the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Courtney Cates. She is the founder and designer of Maison du Soir, which is a sleepwear company that she created when she noticed a lack of options for quality, no frills pajamas. Courtney had been working in the fashion industry, climbing the corporate ladder, in quotation marks, as she says, when she started to build the company. Her goal was to create sleepwear that was flattering, on trend, and built for sleep. Courtney says that she's even found that certain fabrics can help promote better sleep. Here she is to tell you more about it. Hi, I'm Courtney Cates Garcia, and I'm the CEO and designer of Maison de Soie. Maison de Soie is a sleep and loungewear line. I started the brand after I noticed a hole in the sleeper market. It seemed that a lot of the styles being offered were boxy or unflattering or they weren't paying attention to fashion. So what makes Maison de Soie unique is that we pay attention to relevant colors and prints. I try to use fabrics that help people sleep. I pay attention to whether people are hot or cold sleepers. And I like to make sure that all of our silhouettes are flattering. And now you can find Maison de Soie all around the country and you can learn more at our website, MaisonDeSoie.com. And I have to say, I've worn the pajamas. They're beautiful and they are comfortable. I slept well. So congratulations, Courtney. I wish you and your company continued success. 
Remember, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more about Courtney and her story. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send me those nominations to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. If you have career questions, you can send those there as well. I know how busy you all are, and it always means the world to get those emails from you. Thank you. I read through them. We really do. We work to get back to all of you. So thank you. I also want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you to those of you who have been leaving us reviews like Colin Speckhart, who writes, many podcasts feature female entrepreneurs, but I have found none that connects with them as meaningfully and thoughtfully as this one. Rebecca is skilled in discovering not only the who, but also the why and the how. I'm inspired by her stories to play at the top of my game and to help other women as they strive to do the same. Thank you, Cullen. I really appreciate that. We're working so hard to make this a podcast where that conversation is happening, and I'm so thrilled that that's what's coming through to you. Before we go, a shout out to the fabulous team here at ABC that helps make this happen week after week. Our producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Michelle Bancardo, research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.